Script Podcast. We're recording live, technically, from sunny Omaha, Nebraska at NEJS Conf 2018. The Nebraska JavaScript Conference always has a great speaker lineup, and this year is no different. Over the next four to five episodes, we'll be talking to several conference participants, including keynote speakers Clarissa Peterson, who we'll be speaking with today, and Lori Voss of NPM, not to mention two of the conference organizers and even a couple of attendees. In our third episode of this series, we'll be talking to Carl Groves, founder of the accessibility company Tenon and Clarissa Peterson, an instructor for lynda.com and the author of Learning Responsive Web Design, A Beginner's Guide. Carl outlines a framework for understanding what it means to make a web component accessible, and how doing so is more than just targeting specific disabilities, but a method of informing the browser and assistive technologies of what its intent is. We discuss accessibility design pattern documentation, how good accessibility design can be feature-proof, and the responsibility of designing a custom component. Clarissa reminds us that our ethical lapses can have serious consequences, we discuss the importance of thinking about how our work can be misused, examples of both the good and bad ways technology has been used, why tech seems to get a pass where other companies wouldn't, and how a connected world means we shouldn't still be making excuses for not being thoughtful. All right, we are back with Carl Groves. Carl, would you like to, uh, to introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm Carl Groves. I'm the founder of Tenon.io. Tenon is a company that makes an accessibility testing product called Tenon. And we also do testing and training, audits, consulting, pretty much everything that you need to do to be accessible. You talked about a couple of the jobs that you uh, worked on and some of the odd accessibility problems you ran into there. Can you talk about some of those here? It's interesting. Every, every job has sort of interesting traits and characteristics of problems that you run into. I talk about some of the causes of those in, in my presentation, but some of the things we've, uh, you know, I've worked on relate to e-learning, relate to software that people use at their jobs, of, and also e-retail and, and a lot of those sorts of things. Some of the challenges that we've seen just relate to mostly not thinking through some of the, the ways that the user is going to interact with something. So one of the stories I gave in my talk was about an application process, a multi-step application process, where certain portions of the page showed and hide. So step one, you'd be entering your personal information, like your name, your date of birth, and all that sort of stuff. Step two, when you hit the next button, the, the first part of the page that you were on would close, the second part would show, and unfortunately they hadn't thought through how that worked from a user perspective, so they didn't do a really basic, simple thing called shifting focus. And it's the easiest thing in the world with JavaScript to do. It's literally the focus method, and you just tell it the thing to focus on next. And it'll leave, you know, fixing this one thing, actually what we did was in the code, we just issued a callback into that function that showed and hide the stuff to pass in the idea of the next thing that you need to focus on, and, and it simply fixed piles of accessibility problems. You're saying that like a lot of people focus on the focus event itself. <laughs> and then don't think about like the through and the exit scenarios. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they'll, they'll think about, okay, I need to focus on the, the thing when they start, when I start this process, but managing how that focus happens throughout the entire process, the entire interaction of the user is not something people tend to think about. And, and a lot of that is based upon other stuff like testing your own work with a mouse and not testing it with a keyboard. Of course it works with a mouse. I click the next button, the new thing shows up. And just basic stuff like not thinking through how users actually work on stuff like that is 
is the cause of a lot of accessibility issues. So why are you so passionate about accessibility? What got you into this? So it's really weird. I, I, when I tell people how I got into accessibility, I the first say, I don't really have a legitimate reason to be interested in it. Like a lot of times people in the accessibility industry are either disabled themselves or have a friend or family member who is disabled. For me, I was a web developer. And I started getting into professional web development right around the time Section 508 started getting enforced, which was 2000. So I was making websites since mid to late 90s, 96, And, and that's the Americans with Disabilities yeah, Act. No, no, Section 508 was for the Rehabilitation Act. Rehabil rehabilitation Act, thank you. was a federal you. law that yes. said that government stuff had to be accessible. Basically, thank you. That, yeah. that's the boiled down version. So they had this two-year grace period. 2000 comes along. That's when I'm starting to get into professional web development. And I couldn't find a job because they would check my work against an automated testing tool, they would find out that I was not making accessible stuff, so they would turn me down. And I got really upset about that, so I decided <laughs> I need to be like the expert on this. I need to know what the heck I'm talking So that's how I got into accessibility. And the thing that was interesting to me about it was because I could point to the quality of my work and immediately also be able to say that the quality of that work has a direct impact on real people. Like I could literally name the people or even in an abstract sense, but I could say these are the people who were, whose experiences have been improved because of my work. And I really like that because, you know, as a kid, I grew up, you know, working on cars and I, and I liked having that tangible outcome Absolutely. of whatever, you know, yeah. building an engine or putting a transmission. This was another sort of manifestation of that, which is I wrote all this code, which, yeah, it shows up on the screen, but also real people are now it's that it's that kind of that, that tinkering culture right? yeah yeah that's that's what i love about development in and of itself is that it's it's a very tangible way to tinker, tinker with things and, and see stuff work yeah. and have impact in people's lives yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so you were i mean you were really in on kind of the accessibility movement from the very beginning it's amazing to think though how how really far back accessibility goes now of course yeah when it comes to the web that's kind of early. A lot of the earlier work on, on web accessibility was really at the break of, of when the web started getting popular too. So a lot of people don't realize, but a lot of that work was pioneered by people like the Trace Research Center and, and University of Madison, Wisconsin. Some of those folks had been there in the very early days of the web to help create accessibility guidelines. And what we see in the first version of WCAG that came out in 1999 was a lot of a lot of that early trace research work as well as some other work from other places like WGBH in Boston and some other people had come together and that was the first version of WCAG. So accessibility existed for a long time before that, even going back to talking terminals. But in terms of the big boom that we probably recognize, yeah, that was that was kinda early. Yeah. And as the technology's changed. Obviously the accessibility patterns have changed to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. I mean the the base idea hasn't changed but but obviously i mean i just going from like i said we've been working on dojo for years mm -hmm. that was one of our key selling points for dojo was we are fully accessible even going from that code which i remember writing to now is night and day difference the aria attributes were just coming on the scene and now there's a million of them yeah, i think <laughs> you talked a little little bit about the history of how the web has changed over the years and how accessibility standards have followed it. Yeah. One of the things in, in the earliest versions of Section 508, there was basically this, this provision that sort of got tossed in there and said everything had to work with JavaScript turned off. And a large... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Think about doing that now. Um, 
But the reason for that is because assistive technologies at the time couldn't really do much with it, right? Assistive technology, you know, basically got a copy of the of the page, rend- rendered that stuff out to standard output, and that was that. Yeah. So if you change content on the page, it didn't know if it didn't changed. know any of that sort of stuff. So luckily, we started seeing the creation of accessibility APIs like MSAA and all that sort of stuff and some of the other stuff that, that happens with behind the scenes with the browser so that if there is a DOM refresh or, or even a DOM node that becomes shown or hidden, now assistive technologies are fine with it, yeah. right? Now they can understand that stuff. It, they often still do keep a copy of the page in a buffer and that's for performance reasons and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But at least there's events now that it'll listen to, it'll understand and then refresh that buffer and, and you can move on. And then like you guys, I said with Aria, you know, Aria was a big step forward because we had all these custom controls and all that sort of stuff that people were creating that assistive technologies just had no idea how to deal oh, with. Yeah. Like if you made a tree menu in your web-based application, there was no way of really conveying any of that structure to, to the assistive technology. So Aria really, really helped that. And then HTML5 coming along and incorporating Aria into the standard itself, that was that was phenomenal. So thankfully, I think accessibility as a field is able to keep up better than it was, but we still have a ways to go. Lots oh, of sure. really like groundbreaking technologies like AR and VR, the accessibility work on that is conceptual at that's best. Gonna be, that's going to be... I hadn't even thought about that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you, you get a screen reader to describe a, a virtual world? Well, and, it, but if you think about it, there's also lots of opportunities there. For oh, that. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so it seems sort of horribly insurmountable, and even to me, I, I feel like it's insurmountable. But then there's also the idea that maybe, maybe we have new learning opportunities with AR and VR that we couldn't have before that improves accessibility for people. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hopefully people smarter than me are working on that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that you were really concentrating on in your talk was the idea of like custom components. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's kind of the heart of what we do, right? Like. Yeah. Uh, a lot of what we do at SitePen and a lot of what most people leveraging JavaScript do is, even if it's not recreating a button or recreating a dropdown, they're creating a full experience and then usually as part of that, creating their own select field or, mm. or dropdown so that it fits in with the design language mm. that they have at a minimum. And I think you, you kind of laid out a bunch of different lenses through which to look at uh, these components. and I. I kind of wanted you to go into a little bit about that, starting with the, the what-how question that is kind of the name of your talk. Yeah, so it's what is this thing and what does it do? And the, the reason I came up with actually, I came up with that as a joke. So <laughs> it all, pre- the, all the best insights are yeah. start out as jokes. It was, so I used to work for an, an, a different accessibility company, not my own, and we were all remote, and we would, sometimes we would get together and do, instead of like pair programming, it'd be pair testing. So we'd get on the Hangout, and we'd be both testing the same thing. And it became, a, this one was so bad, this one website was so horrible that it became a joke. And I'd be like, I'd, I'd say to my coworker, I'd be like, hey, Jeff, what do you think this thing does? You know? And, and, then, and then it'll be, you know, we'd go play around with it and we're like, what? You know? So that's so. We, we've seen those, so yeah. So it'd be a joke. Like, what I, is this I, thing? I, I try to put those out of my head so I don't have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so, but I decided I wanted to put a positive spin on this. Yeah. Because if you think about it, that question is fundamental to our ability to use controls in a user interface. Absolutely. Is the first thing we need to do is we need to understand what is it and what happens when I interact with it. 
you know? And we see this in the physical space all the time. How many times have you seen a door that looks like it has a uh, push handle yeah. that you really need to pull? I did right? that. I, I did that about an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. So, so, we're, so, so the, the, the interface of the door lied to you, right? Yeah, yeah. It had that pull or it had that thing that, that, you, uh, that looked like you would push it and you actually had to pull it. So the same thing goes for controls on a user interface. So the first thing that the user needs to know when they encounter a control, what is this thing and what does it do? And that's what you, you have this kind of poor acronym, right, to, to kind of explain that right. the first step. Yes. So then in WCAG, there's a, in WCAG 2, there's a, all the structure of the guidelines themselves are oriented under four principles. It's got this acronym, P-O-U-R. I didn't make it. It's perceivable, <laughs> operable, understandable, and robust. And they organize it that way so you can sort of immediately sort of think in your mind, okay, what is this about? So if it's perceivable then it means it's about the senses. So that's where you get into stuff like color contrast, all the attributes for images, closed captions, audio description, all those things are under that poor section. And so then there's operable, which deals with whether the user can operate the controls with their computer or whatever their hardware is. So mm-hmm. that's where you get into keyboard accessibility or I say keyboard accessibility is sort of a catch-all for anything that's not mouse. So you would get into things like touchscreen compatibility and even switch compatibility in that section mm-hmm. too. Understandable has to do with like the content and the organization of both the content and the controls, like the relationships between things. And then robust is really the one I focus on mostly in that talk, which is can my computer and my assistive technology interpret this content in a way that suits my needs, right? Mm. So if something is rendered on the screen as a checkbox and it looks like a checkbox, does it also convey that mm. programmatically in a way that allows the assistive technology to convey that to me too? So when we see the stuff on the screen, we that what is this thing, what does it do, is often conveyed to us by the appearance of it. We know something that is a small square thing next to a label is probably a checkbox, mm-hmm. and we check it and uncheck it and all that. But if a user gets focus on that and their system technology says something else, not checkbox, then fundamentally that also breaks the expectations of the user in terms of how they can interact with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the robustness of that comes into. And so follow-up for that was the section on what's called name, state, role, and value. Now, the WCAG success criteria actually says name, role, and value. I had state in there because that's, that's really important, too. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a good yes. thing These oh, Those are sort of the fundamental object properties that need to get conveyed in order to be predictable for the user. The name is, what is it? So on a button, that would be like the inner text of the button, whereas on a checkbox, it would be the label element or whatever. The role is, is what is it? So again, going back to this idea of the checkbox, the role that would be conveyed would, would be checkbox. The state, what's it's doing? So is it checked? Is it on or off? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And then the value is whatever it represents. The value, we would probably be aware of that in, in, in terms of processing a form the value that it represents when it's when it's submitted. But all these sorts of things get conveyed to the user through the assistive technology. The other cool part about it is that uh, a lot of assistive technologies will provide the user helpful information. So in the presentation, I did that video on radio buttons and it said radio button one of one and then radio button two of two selected, you know, that sort of stuff. But the other thing is if you wait long enough on voiceover, It'll also tell you, use up and down arrows to navigate. Mm. Jaws would say the same thing. Yeah, we, we get that stuff for free if we're using the standard controls because the, the assistive technology is, has been told these are radio Already buttons. understands the standard controls. Yeah. yeah. And so if you use up and down arrow keys, you can navigate. So that's a really cool thing about ARIA, though, is ARIA sets up this, I call it a lie, but it sets up this lie 
that's that's use, that's useful if we follow through with it. Yeah. It's, it's an interface. Yeah, exactly. Um, because if you if you mark something, let's say you you have to make a custom radio button set because your designer had to have this design. Oh yeah. And so then you you create your custom radio buttons. If you use the necessary aria for that, then the assistive technology will also give them that yeah, helpful information. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's really great about about Aria in specific is helping us to bridge that gap between what the browser supports, either either the browser support itself or the styling support, which we know is also often right. lacking, is that Aria will help us bridge that gap. Right. We're still on the hook as developers to, to oh, absolutely. fulfill yeah, the rest of that, that line, yep. but it's still, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And, and really, it's doing what we already do as developers, mm -hmm. right? We're already writing our components so the browser knows exactly what to do. Now we're just extending that to, all right, not only do we have a browser, but we've got a secondary browser that could potentially could be reading our site, which is the assistive technology. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to add some hints to it, to our, our markup, mm -hmm. so it knows what's going on. And what's interesting about that is that, that it's remarkably easy. I mean, it really I is. A lot of people feel like accessibility is obtuse, but when you think about, like, you're, if we're talking about doing components, like in React or Vue or something yeah. like that, and we're changing properties anyway, you know, we're changing the, whatever the property is to change the class name or something, yeah. we're already toggling that property. All we need to do is, is add an additional property for the selected state. So now we have the class name that makes the custom thing change from one thing to the other. Yeah. And then the other part is that aria selected equals true or aria selected equals false really 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 it's super easy simple stuff. yeah and and i think i think the, the only and this this may have changed in the last year even so i could be wrong by saying this but i think the only real barrier for most developers is the documentation mm -hmm. it's all in specs yeah and those are so those are they're so dense and it's hard to like okay this means this how does this relate to this other attribute so yeah. I mean, if, if somebody could make a great site for that. I mean, yeah. I think I'm sure MDN is is working on something, yeah. but I think that's the biggest barrier to entry because it's it's not hard to add an extra attribute. You know, what's really cool is so uh, the working group, which who knows what the name of the working group is, <laughs> but I think it's the APG in at the W3C has literally today, I believe, published the ARIA design patterns or ARIA practices guide 1.1. What's cool about that is it takes all that obtuse information about ARIA and sort of provides de design patterns for how to do those That's things. Nice. So if I want a menu bar, yeah. then it'll tell you all the roles, states, and properties for that. And they also often have working examples that they link to. So it's really cool. So one of the things I tell people is the first thing you need to do is when you have an idea in your head of like some nifty, awesome control, go through that list. Is that control listed there? If it's not, don't do it. Because right? mm -hmm. I've seen... <laughs> Because I've seen people who had menus, like mobile menus that were select elements that also had radio buttons in them. And I was like, that's not what you want to do. So, mm -mm. but so that's the first. And then the second one is just follow that link, read the information. It tells you how the keystroke should work. It tells you what the states and properties should be. As the, and then they have the working examples. And that was really like a, a the final bit that I always felt that they were missing. Yeah. And now you can just. Do That's it. great. That's yeah, I liked great. in the beginning you were like, what does this button do or whatever? Yeah. And ever, and someone's like, oh, you can click it and then choose something else. Yeah. Then, <laughs> so then you read like the next eight slides or ten slides were actually how you interact with it. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes we think of the way that we use a component personally, like not even talking about disabilities or not. 
I might click I might click on a select box, hold my mouse down and scroll to another one and let go. And someone designing a custom component might not design for that at all because it's not the way they use a select yeah, not button. The way they use it, yeah. So it, it's it's interesting like there are so many different pieces of interaction even with a specific thing. The thing that I think is neat about kind of the way that you presented this mental framework for looking at components is I think a lot of the time we as developers get into the mindset of thinking like, well, how is this going to look in a screen reader? How is this going to look with someone that's only using a keyboard? But I think the more interesting way to look at it is how can I make this work with any assistive technology now or in the future? Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of the specifications aim to do is Mm -hmm. not just make it work with one specific interactive device. They're designed to make it work with everything because you're, like you're saying, you're lying to the browser. You're telling the browser, this is what I am. This is how I work. This is what I can do. What you're actually doing under the scenes doesn't matter. Yeah. And statistically speaking, we have this idea that users with disabilities fit in these distinct buckets. Like, this is the blind person bucket, yeah. and this is the hearing mm-hmm. person bucket. And all that. Statistically speaking, there are 54 million people in the United States who have a disability. Now, statistics, the way that they're gathered by the government are different based on who's doing it. But well, let's use 54 million. Now, if we take up those same numbers and take the segments of those, it adds up to more like 70 million. And people really? are like, why? Well, the reason why is because lots of times people might have multiple disabilities, oh. right? So you might be vision impaired and also hearing impaired, you know, and that happens a lot to soldiers returning from war, right? They might have had a IED go off next yeah. to them, lose hearing, lose some form of vision or something. Mobility impaired, cognitive impaired. There could be any combination of those, which is why I sort of advocate for a more holistic view of, of this, of accessibility. So worrying about how it's going to work in a screen reader even if you get it to work perfectly in a screen reader, you still might be missing something out. A screen reader is a good extreme case that we tend to think about, but it could be anything. It could be keyboard only. It could be somebody on a sip and puff device. It could be somebody on eye tracking. It could be. Who well, knows? I think I think or, the, a, the new, screen, a new thing that's not out yet. I think yeah, the screen right. readers. I, I really think the screen reader is, to, to be honest, it's an easy one to test, mm-hmm. especially with with Macs. Yeah. It's right built into yeah. the operating system. Yeah. JAWS is pretty easy to download. You get a, what, a so many day trial and then you have to reinstall it or... 40 minutes at a time and then you just have to restart the computer. Yeah, yeah. So you put it in a virtual machine. You, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So, I mean, it's that's low barrier to entry. Yeah. Sip, sip and puff device. You got to actually test that? Well, see, that's the thing. Is that's why I, that's why I call keyboard accessible. No, I, I understand that. that be, mostly because of the fact that I, I can almost guarantee that it works effectively on a keyboard. Yeah. It's, but that being said, you know, as long as you don't have multi-key gestures and any sort of really crazy stuff. There, yeah. So it's a good approximation. Oh, absolutely. You can't, yeah. you can't go and test all your stuff with eye tracking or, or any of that sort of. You right. Just can't, you know, re, I mean. Realistically. Yeah. yeah. The pragmatic answer to that is we're not going to do it, but it, but we can test on the devices that we have access to, keyboard and touchscreen or whatever. Then we're ninety percent. You, you should really be thinking about like, is it working the way it should work? You're not looking for bugs with assistive devices, really, when you're doing your testing, right. uh, and like getting a good foundation on how things should work seems to be really important, mm-hmm. regardless of accessibility. Like, yeah, it's just part of writing a custom component is a responsibility to people that are going to use it. Like yeah. like you were saying, you, you basically said, like, just don't write a custom component. <laughs> if you, if, if you, you can do it otherwise. If it doesn't fit, in the, if, if it doesn't fit within these things, yeah. rethink it. Like, yeah. So back to the cars, right? Like, if you don't know how to build an engine for a car from scratch, don't try to build don't an engine it. from, <laughs> from scratch because <laughs> fail, a yeah. half-finished <laughs> engine 
if you don't have a good understanding about how it works, yeah, a half yeah. engine is going to explode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you build most of it right, then it's going to explode. <laughs> Otherwise, right. it's going to do nothing. Yeah, but I mean, right, even right. if you've got the perfect application, right, and you stick this one component, like you stick your, your custom-built carburetor yep. in your, you know, your Hemi or whatever. Yeah. I, I, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not a car guy, but I know carburetors, right? So you stick your custom carburetor in that may or may not work, you're going to destroy the whole thing. Right, yeah. you know, it just ruins the whole experience. Yeah. So, I, so stick to custom components if you don't, <laughs> if you don't want to take the time to learn the full set of things that are involved in building your own custom component. Well, that's a, that's a great point that I, I think a lot of people just miss is... I think fundamentally, it's it's what I call lesson zero. Yeah. Like lesson zero is is really to understand how objects work in the browser, mm-hmm. yeah. right? How this object is different than than another, like how an actual HTML button element object exists in the browser and what it does versus a div with yeah. a roll of button with a click event handler. You know th- that people don't understand that part of things, and so therefore they're setting themselves up for failure when they do have to go to a custom component because the custom component idea is something that, you know, because... But I the, want it to look pretty. Well, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's funny because it isn't... It, it, that, I mean, that's a great point, especially when it comes to stylable formulas. Oh, sure, yeah. But there's other stuff that's never going to, never going to exist in HTML, like a tab panel or a tree menu, right? It took how long to get details and summary and the dialogue element, mm-hmm. right? And even that's not well-supported. Both of those are not well-supported these days. But to get a tree menu control or a tab panel in HTML, it's just not going to happen. So we're going to have to create that stuff custom. But I still think we should understand how objects get painted onto the screen and how they get rendered oh, yeah, to yeah. users before we go doing that. And so many people just don't have it. I think having an appreciation for how much work went into like something as simple as a button in the web browser is important for people too. There's the, the bike shedding joke, which is that if things appear simple, people want to do their own version of it. <laughs> and like, under, like it, the more you understand how complex these things are that appear to be simple, right. the, the less you're gonna want to like start it over from scratch. Yeah. Radio buttons are not just like the select, even the select drop down that you went over all the things you need to do with it. It's not, you don't click on it and choose something. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible set of pattern that people have thought of, that have really thought through over 30, 30 years. Like before even the web started, this, yeah. this stuff was in, in Java and other native applications. Yeah. I think yeah. having a healthy respect for basic HTML controls is important before you start thinking of rolling your own. Yeah. So yeah what, what you're really saying is get off my lawn, you newbies. <laughs> I don't. No, I think. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I think. I mean, it's like with anything. Like, yeah, it's it's tough being young because knowing how much you know incorrectly as you get older is really really tough. Oh yeah. And part of that is like you go to have such a healthy respect for so many different things that were carefully created by so many different people, and to, I guess, to have the opportunity to learn that and to not learn it is is a problem more than just plain old ignorances. Yeah. I think, but I th- I do think if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> you know too much. So <laughs> you can't unlearn the things that we've taught you. Yeah, I think that that's probably one of the hardest things is the list of things that you need, that you feel like you should learn mm-hmm. get longer and longer as you get older and you realize that you're not going to learn all those things. No. Yeah, the more, more that's you, why you start specializing. The, the more you learn, the more you learn how much you don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's crazy. Thanks for sitting yeah, down with that was us, great. Carl. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Neil Roberts. Uh, here with our next interview for the TalkScript podcast. Here with a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Clarissa Peterson. I'm a UX designer from Calgary, Alberta. 
I am mostly self-employed. I'm an educator. I sometimes teach at SATE, which is our technical school. I do a lot of speaking at conferences. I make online courses for lynda.com. Cool. I'm a big Linda fan. We get a free throw library as well, which is really nice. Yeah, our library has that too. So. Everyone should. I like, I like the idea of free learning. It's really cool. Uh, so what's the gist of your talk that you're going to be giving today? So today I'm talking about ethics for developers and um, basically a lot of it is talking about some ethical problems that have come up with various companies and how they've handled them well or not handled them well. And one of the big things is when you're creating something, you know, and it's not just a problem for designers, but anybody who works on a product, you need to think about the worst case scenarios of what can go wrong if it's used incorrectly, if it's used by bad people that try to use it in a certain way, and if people just make mistakes and don't follow instructions. And then when these worst case scenarios do happen, how do you recover from them? Make, you know, make like a, a way to back out of what you've done wrong. Yeah. I, I should say, what's your experience with people that could run into these problems. I've right. mostly worked in places where we've worked on like content-based websites, so there really aren't as many ethical issues with those. I've <laughs> yeah. not really worked in the technology field itself very much, yeah. so I, I picked this as a topic more because I'm really interested in it, and I did a lot of research to, oh, to yeah. find out what I wanted to talk about. I definitely think it's something that developers need to hear. I mean, from my experience, I see a lot of developers that are very excited about what they can do. I think that is what creates a lot of the oversight that we see in some of these situations, right? Like uh, one of the things you are going to talk about is the Volkswagen engineer who's in prison, right? Like that's, right. that's, that's something where the me as a programmer, the technical side of like, how do I get away with this sounds like an, for an excuse for me to be clever. And it's, some, it's easy sometimes to overthink like, what are the unintended consequences of this? Right, and, and that, I mean, it was very clear to all of them, or it should have been, that they're doing something legally as well as ethically wrong. Yeah. And the difference in that thing is, is usually it's just like CEOs or high-level people that are held responsible. But in that case, this guy was just a programmer and he got sent to prison. So that's something that's a possibility for all of us. You can't just say, well, I did what my boss told me to do. If, if you really know it was legally wrong, you can be held legally responsible for it. I think what you were saying is even more than legally wrong, like there was human life right. uh, at risk. And that's something Thing we don't think about. I mean, we're like pollution. Oh, well, the air is just a little bit dirty, but pollution actually causes a lot of premature deaths, like hundreds of thousands of people every year. And the, somebody actually calculated just by the Volkswagens that had extra emissions in the U.S. That, that was what happened in this particular case. 59 people around died just because of that extra emission. So that's real people that died because of this programmer making this code to cheat the emissions test. And just in case anybody isn't familiar with this, what happened is Volkswagen was making a new engine and it was it, ha it was really good at a better fuel efficiency, but the downside, it had really high emissions and it wouldn't have passed the test in the U.S. So instead of fixing the emissions from the engine, they added some programming in there that would just make it cheat on the emissions test. And it could figure that out basically like if the car engine is running but the wheels aren't turning and things that like happen during the, the a laboratory test, it, and, yeah. it, it can tell the difference. So in those situations, the engine acts differently so the emissions don't come out. And then, But when it gets out in the real world, like 40 times as much emissions come out, but then it gets all the really good fuel efficiency and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's, it's so easy for people to see the, or I guess to not see the butterfly effect. You know, these small changes that you make having much larger repercussions. And if they do, it's much easier to say, well, I didn't directly cause that. And that's, 
it's a big mess. Like uh, you were talking about some of the housing listings, I think, uh, on Facebook. Right. A couple years ago, ProPublica discovered that Facebook was allowing advertisers to post housing ads and you could exclude certain groups by race. Like you could exclude African-Americans or, or uh, people of Hispanic, people who are Hispanic. And that's actually really, really illegal. And it's been illegal in the United States for about 50 years to discriminate by race in housing ads. Uh, and Facebook is like, oh, well, this is horrible. We didn't know people were doing this. And then they didn't even fix it because they came back and looked at it again, like in another year. And people were still allowed to place this kind of ad. Well, I know a lot, some of it is like where they'll get rid of the, like the explicit targeting of people, but then still like leave all of these other ways where you can target specific populations by clusters of things that those populations are generally in favor of or even by where they live. Like if you want to target a certain ethnicity, you can target a set of ethnic TV shows that are geared towards that ethnicity. You can target stuff like that. And in, in this case, it was actually pretty specific. <laughs> and so you don't actually enter your race on Facebook. They yep. don't know your race, mm. but they can guess it from all these different things, like what kind of things you post. So in your interest list, they, they make your interest list. That's not something that you do. Mm. Some of the interests include like affinity for African-American culture, mm. which doesn't mean that you're African-American, yeah. but you know the people in that group are pretty likely to be. So that's that's what people posting housing ads were using. Yeah, and they are, yeah. I mean, that stuff's really, that's, that's the stuff that's really damaging, but it's hard for certain people to even come to terms with how damaging it is. Like if you don't see some of that systemic prohibiting people from living in certain areas, being able to participate in certain groups. Yeah, and the reason we have these strong housing ads is just because it was so horrible before that. Like people were being kept out of neighborhoods by covenants and that sort of thing. And so people that weren't white were being relegated to further from the city, further from good jobs, lower quality housing and all that sort of thing. And so they passed this law, and it's been a really great law, and it's not perfect, but it, it helps a lot of people and really has made a change in a lot of people's lives. And, I mean, hopefully we'll keep that law, and but it, but it needs to be enforced. And, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to enforce it in a newspaper ad. You don't have ads anymore that say no black people, obviously. <laughs> but the, the, technic, the technology, I mean, it makes it... So you don't know what people are doing necessarily. It's not as obvious. Yeah, and even, like... People seem so hesitant to even reveal that people are using their software in these sort of negative ways, but like that seems like it would be one of the solutions, right? Like Facebook just had a 20% drop in their stock price the other day. Like, and you're like, well, is this correlated to some of what they're doing to shut this sort of behavior down? Yeah, well, I, I think that's because they said they're going to pay more attention to privacy concerns, which, uh, I mean, that's like maybe bad for their advertising model. But, you know, I mean, that, that is a really big ethics thing that you need to not be sharing people's personal data with third parties without their permission or their knowledge. And it's just, it's amazing that, you know, like technology companies seem to be getting away with all sorts of things that, that other companies wouldn't get away with because part of it is the government really doesn't understand. You know, the senators and representatives, a lot of them just aren't savvy about these sort of things. Then they, they don't understand the problem and they don't know how to fix it. So there needs to be, they need to learn, basically. They need to figure it out and hold companies responsible for things that they're doing that are, that are illegal or that harm large groups of people. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I know a lot about machine learning and what we can tell from data sets. And it's pretty easy for Facebook to say, like, this person is targeting this ethnicity just with a set of behaviors that they have. So it, it, it's one of those things where you're just like, when they don't do it, I know that they're choosing not to do it. And maybe they 
don't always realize that certain things are happening. But in this case, they were told, they're like, hey, look, this is happening. And then they didn't even fix it. I mean, that... As an engineer there, like whoever's working on this, the capability to specify what we're saying interests, Mm -hmm. right? The person that is writing that code should be able to say like, someone's going to be able to misuse this. Yeah, that's the thing. And, And people need to be thinking about those worst case scenarios. Like, oh, look, you can target by all sorts of different things. Well, you know, are there any things here that might be a problem? You know, if you're just targeting people because of their race. Another thing is, so I read this thing recently, somebody had made a bot where people could use it to kind of manage their drinking. If they were a heavy drinker or an alcoholic, they're trying to stop drinking. And the guy who made this bot was talking to somebody on Messenger, on Facebook Messenger about it. And the next day he had all these liquor ads in his Instagram feed. And that's kind of like unintended consequences. Like you're an alcoholic and you're talking about not drinking, you know, you're going to end up with liquor ads because Facebook wants you to drink more. And you can't always think about things like that ahead of time, but you know, you need to put a lot more effort into trying to think of as many things that can go wrong as you can. You know, if alcohol is on the interest list, it's like, well, alcohol, there's, there's some issues there. What could go wrong with that if people are targeting that improperly? Or, you know, drugs or something like that. I, I don't even know what goes on on Facebook, but there's, you know, on Facebook, you can sell guns on Facebook and a lot of people are really upset about that you know are people using that legally and properly I don't know but hopefully somebody's looking at it yeah really people really get themselves into a lot of trouble you were talking as well about even even things where people are unethical because of just not thinking things through not even in terms of bad actors but like would you start a car with your phone and then you forget your phone or your phone's out of range. Right, and that was something I saw posted on Instagram. Uh, this guy had one of those cars where you use your phone to start it, but he got up in the mountains, he, he stopped his car for a second, and he couldn't restart it because he didn't have cell phone service. And the car maker does say, well, carry your key fob around with you all the time, but who's going to do that? I mean, they, they're like, here's a car you can start with your phone. You know, why would you carry your key fob? <laughs> here's so, an exciting thing you can do. Yeah, exactly. So just because you tell people of all the things that can go wrong if they don't follow instructions, that doesn't mean they're going to follow instructions. You have to count on that. You have to assume that people are not going to follow instructions. They're not going to understand how they're supposed to use something. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to not do their software updates. And if all these things are going to have like this really awful consequence, you need to figure out a way around that. I think people think a lot of this stuff is like just happening recently, but I think one of the things you're going to touch on is that this has been happening for a while with technology companies being involved in problems that happened a while ago. Yeah, one of the things I bring up is going all the way back to World War II, and the Nazis were using technology from IBM to track Jews and to find them, to organize their concentration camps. You know, and at the time, you know, IBM in the U.S., like, did employees know this was happening? Was there, could they have done something about it? And back then, they maybe didn't even know because newspapers weren't covering the full story, that sort of thing. You know, but now with the Internet, we all know, or we should know what our companies are doing, what the technology we're working on is being used for. There's no excuse for not knowing. So if you know that you're building something that's going to be used for bad purposes, you know, you have that responsibility to speak up or not participate in it. I think you're saying there's someone that hacked a census machine? There is. This guy, his name is Rene Carmi, and I'm not quite sure I'm pronouncing that right. He was from France. He was the head of the census, and then the Nazis came in and, and took over France. 
and he kept he just kept doing his job because he had to but he actually used the census data to recruit people for the French resistance and then he also hacked their punch card their data processing so it could not record any data in the column for religion so they had thousands and thousands of people where there was no data recorded. And the result of that was that in the Netherlands, which is next door, I think it was around 73% of Jews were caught and executed, basically. But in France, the number was only about 25% because they just couldn't find them. And this guy was called the first hacker. And, and he, I think he did a really great thing. You know, his, he knew his, his employer was doing something really, really wrong. He did what he had to do. And unfortunately, you know, he got caught. He and his team, they, they got caught and executed. I'm sure they expected that, but they saved thousands and thousands of lives. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the goal, isn't it? Like, not just to avoid the unethical things that you're kind of complicit in as an engineer nowadays if, if you don't really take the time to think things through but even to subvert when you can yeah and hopefully most of us won't ever be put in that position you know but we could be you don't it's, know what it's what hard the, to know yeah yeah you don't know what the world is going to be like so but even if it's not something as big as that even if it's only a little thing you have a responsibility to really think about what you're doing and is it the right thing and is there anything that you should be doing to you know, make sure that your company is acting in a more ethical way. Yeah, even like some of the, when we write software, like I, at SitePen, we work a lot on a toolkit, which other people use when they're building their software. And like, we've actually been stopped at different conferences where people were doing like very good things with our software. And it's like, when I wrote that, I never, I always, you know, as we're writing it, we're thinking like, this is just going to be used by some enterprise company somewhere that's like trying to make their database faster or whatever it's been cool to even see like i should take care in my work because it might be used for people that are doing things that are way better than i'm doing so like even taking more pride in the good things that i do as well as being careful about how what i do can be misused right and there's there's a lot of things good that we can do with our skills and i actually gave a talk a couple years ago on that subject it was called design for good basically and you know it's things like airbnb for example Mm -hmm. has done this thing where when there's a natural disaster they're able to like people can get housing for free Immobilize, and people yeah. volunteer housing. Facebook, you know, they do a lot of bad things, but they also do some good things. They have a thing when there's disasters, you can check in, let people know if you're safe. You can specifically communicate with other people in the affected area to like share resources and, and all sorts of things. So when we can, we should be thinking about what we can do for good also. Yeah, I mean, this, this all makes me think like, especially talking about things that happen historically, like I feel like people sometimes write off the drive for more ethical behavior as like political correctness or like why is everyone suddenly so upset about stuff and it's not that like it's not that this stuff has not been going on because it's obviously been going on it's that you should know better like we have more technology we're smarter we're more educated we have a greater view of the world we know that things have much far-reaching consequences than we'd previously thought that's why we should care more about our behavior Right. And certainly, I mean, this is only a small bit of all the wrong things that happen (laughs) in the world. I mean, there's thousands of people starve to death every day, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's not just a matter of, oh, now that we have technology, bad things are happening. I mean, the world is already a bunch of bad things happening. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just my opinion, is we mm-hmm. should all be doing things yeah. to make things better in the world. Oh, definitely. It's, as a programmer, is what we do is so easy sometimes that it's easy to think that it, it doesn't affect the world the way that it does. Great. This, <laughs> this has been a fun chat. 
I hope everyone's learned a lot from it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We got a good